This is Guilty Pleasures and Shameless Treasures, and I'm your host, Courtney Farron, bringing you the latest in pop culture while also highlighting mental health and well-being, because life's about balance, right? Welcome back to Guilty Pleasures and Shameless Treasures. I'm your host, Courtney. Hello, everyone, and good morning. Um, And no, you're not going crazy. I did change the name of my podcast, um, and I changed it because I changed, and... We're all dynamic individuals, and I want to maybe broaden the horizons of this podcast a little bit. I want to mix in a couple of my guilty pleasures or or outlets, so you say, with a little bit of more serious content as well. Um, I took a break from, I'll just uh, get the pink elephant out of the room. I uh, took a break from podcasting. I went through a hard time during quarantine. It was not easy. It was, I I spiraled a little bit, even though I think it was really hard on everyone. But yeah, I definitely went through some ebbs and flows. And now I'm finally feeling a little bit back to normal and um, wanting to, to share again with you. And what inspired this, I know a lot of you have been listening to my podcast lately, um, is I am my good friend Charlena posted a beautiful story of my recovery journey and it brought a lot of people to my podcast um and I every time I post why I've been avoiding it is because every time I post something I feel so much shame I feel just like I want to die and I'm just so embarrassed um so that's why I've been avoiding it but it seems to be helping you guys and it seems to be helping some people heal. And when people respond to me that me telling my story helped them heal, then this becomes not about me. It becomes about you and helping you. So I'm here and I'm conquering my shame. And that brings us to the topic I thought would be fitting of today's episode. And it's um, battling shame. I'm not going to say overcoming because it's very much still in my world. I've not by any means perfect and have been dealing with a lot of shame lately as as amongst other things. But I thought today we would highlight a, a, a bit of shame. And um, I, you know, something that recently has happened in my life is that I've quit smoking officially i'm a non-smoker of cigarettes and i'm really proud to say that because that was that was a big big dark cloud of shame in my life i i was not a smoker for most of my life and i picked it up a couple years ago and now i finally kicked it and i'm feeling so much better it's great um but you know one of the reasons why i haven't even made a podcast at all recently is because of shame because I've recorded things but then I've had too much shame to post them so that's going to change today um there is a way to face shame while also not avoiding it I think I'm amazing at avoiding things um so whenever those really I know you guys if you guys can think about what shame maybe feels like in your body it for me it's like this almost like a stab in the heart or in the stomach or like just like pure humiliation and um usually when that feeling comes up for me I push it down or I avoid it or I do something like smoke a cigarette to to avoid it 
Um, so there's a way to face it without, you know, letting your whole self unravel. Um, uh, it's a, an everyday practice that I'm trying to still understand. If you guys have any suggestions or how you deal with your shame, please let me know. I would love to know. And r- right now, the only thing that I'm trying to do is meditate a little bit more, exercise a little bit more so that those thoughts are, are just, they seem more manageable. That's where I'm at right now. Um, but you know, because this podcast is sort of, I'm, it's inspired by my story being out there. I thought it would be nice to, to share another story with you guys. Um, so I found this beautiful story about overcoming shame on a double shot of recovery.com. If you guys are ever wanting to read some beautiful stories, there's a lot on there. And unfortunately this, I wish I could credit this person, but they decided to remain anonymous, uh, which I totally respect, but um, bear with me and I'll read you this beautiful story. If only shame were fleeting and impermanent, but it's not. It's sticky, hard to remove, crippling. Unlike justified guilt, which just tells me I did something wrong. Shame says I am wrong, defective to the core, avoid me, shun me, whisk the children away at my coming. Guilt, if heeded, can be productive. I changed my ways, I make amends, I correct course. Shame, on the other hand, has me hanging my head, retreating to the corner, disconnecting from those around me. I feel it in my gut for the first time when I was six. I had an Asian friend and for some reason I noted that his arms were smooth, baby bottom smooth. Peach fuzz covered my adolescent arms, a precursor to the day when hair would sprout everywhere but my temples and back of my head. His arms looked better to me. Father's razor in my hand, I dry shaved every last hair from my arms. Perfection achieved. I returned the razor to the medicine cabinet, unrinsed and clogged. The next morning, while preparing for the day ahead, my dad immediately detected the inefficacy of his blade. He summoned me to the bathroom. Panicked, I froze. I offered no explanation. My scrawny little arms, nicks and all, spoke volumes. I learned for the first time what it meant to be grounded. Why couldn't I explain my actions? It was a pattern that would repeat many times when confronted. I withered when confronted, every time. Just the act of challenging me caused me to think I was defective in some way. I expected to play an error-free game of life. I expected perfection. Surprisingly, I felt no guilt for rendering the razor blade dull. Already, I was too self-centered to consider the impact of my actions on others. But in having my secret exposed, I knew, I just knew, that I was broken. Long before my classmates branded me as odd, if they ever did, I knew that my wiring wasn't properly grounded. I had planned on showing my shaved arms to my Asian friend as a symbol of solidarity. Instead, I hid them with long flannel sleeves. Reacting with shame would become the norm. 
I never felt quite right. Hence, I was drawn to the comfort of intoxicating substances and the patently false I don't care stance of the early punk rock era. Years later, when in sobriety, I went manic, went to jail and went bankrupt in a very public fashion. I discovered a level of shame unmatched by anything in my past. Though I eventually regained my freedom, sanity, and career, I had a deep-seated feeling that I was irreversibly defective. Even at 12-step meetings, the gathering place of fractured souls, I felt out of sorts. Oh, to be a gutter drunk, what I'd give to have Skid Row as my bottom instead of a very public bout of the crazies. But is that true? My bottom had a roof over my head, a pool in the backyard, and cars in the driveway. Was it that bad? Or do I always exaggerate my issues and minimize the problems of others? Hmm. Regardless, I was hurting and my sponsor provided no solace. Had he seen cell phone videos I had shot when I was unhinged in which I played out the role of a man bent on homicide. My crazed attempts at dark humor struck him as bizarre and dangerous. We didn't speak much of the whole episode. So I went through my days always a half step towards slinking into the shadows. I participated half-heartedly in my recovery. I floundered. I was without peers in the sense of being less than, not superior to. Shame was my near constant companion. Even when I emerged from the inevitable depression that followed my last bout of mania, shame-based thinking plagued me. Each time I walked through the airport in Phoenix, just a few miles away from where I was fired at the height of my manic episode, the irrational fear of running into one of my former clients haunted me. Alone with my thoughts, the slightest flicker of a memory from that twisted chapter of my life caused me to visibly wince. There seemed to be no escape. Mercifully, the God I have backburned all too often heard the unexpressed yearnings of my tortured soul. A small but liberating miracle was in the making. Two years after my manic episode, my work as a consultant took me to the little college town of Corvallis, 55,000 people in central western Oregon. The city makes up the majority of the population of Benton County, which a 2003 study found to be the least religious country per capita in the United States. Given the dysfunction of many organized religious bodies, I've long suspected that God might favor the unaffiliated and unagnostic. The grace of God was most certainly upon Corvallis in the spring of 2012. I traveled on Mondays, 4 a.m. was the typical start time, 1,300 miles by air, another 90 by car, and then a full day of work. Come morning, month, sorry, come Monday evening, I was more inclined to head straight to the hotel than a 12-step meeting. But one dark gray Monday, a meeting sounded like just the ticket. I prefer my meetings after dinner. 7 or 8 p.m. was my norm. But on this particular Monday, I found myself at a 5.30 meeting in a frigid library annex at the local Catholic church. As it turned out, 
Bob wasn't much for meetings at this time either. That day he shared that he as typically a noon meeting, he was typically a noon meeting kind of guy. He was supposed to have been finishing in one of the many streams or rivers surrounding Corvallis. He came to the meeting in waders to underscore what he'd rather would have been doing. <laughs> Bob mentioned that he felt compelled to come to a meeting that evening, and he felt compelled to share something that he typically kept to himself. Namely, that he was bipolar. I perked up. He explained that there was a time in sobriety that he didn't see a reason to stay on his meds. Now he had my full attention. Continuing, he related how he had slipped into mania and had been arrested while in sobriety. My kind of guy. Needless to say, when the meeting was over, I nearly pushed people aside to get to Bob as quickly as possible. I thought I was out for a joyride in my truck, he reminisced. They called it assault with a deadly weapon. I could relate. I was just packing my bags and happened to be holding a pistol when my wife poked her head into the bathroom door. They called that assault as well as sent in the SWAT team to underscore their concern. We exchanged phone numbers. We met up for dinner. We swapped stories. We jointly vowed to stay on our meds. Almost immediately, two years worth of crippling shame was lifted. I wasn't completely whole, but I felt a part of 12-step recovery again. Later, I would see a counselor. Shards of shame-based thinking related to my firing and the impact on my wife and daughters necessitated a handful of 90-minute sessions. I made amends to my old employer. I discussed the episode openly and candidly with my daughters. I made my peace with one of the darker segments of my life. After navigating the minefield of shame uneducated, I came across the work of Brene Brown, PhD, a research professor, author, and public speaker based out of the University of Houston's Graduate College of Social Work. Brene, who has researched shame in depth, has written extensively on research that provi provides insights into how people develop shame resilience. In hindsight, my little miracle of interaction with Bob closely parallels a key point of Dr. Brown's findings. She encourages those who are struggling with shame to tell their story, stating that shame could not survive being spoken. She continues by noting that the perfect antidote for shame-based thinking is to share that story with someone who is truly empathetic. Bob was such a person for me. He could and did say he knew exactly what I was going through. Bob never tried to one-up me or minimize what I had been through. He just listened and related experience of his own. What a blessing. Brene encourages people to share their story with a similar trust friend, trusted friend or advisor, someone who has earned the right to hear your story. Speaking shame goes hand in hand with the 12 step of our secrets keep us sick. I took the worst possible course of action initially, keeping that shame bottled up inside where it repeated and replayed slowly, corroding my sense of self-esteem. On some level, I understood the concept of outing my shame-filled thoughts in order to build up resilience to them long before being crippled emotionally by my newspaper headline achieving bout of mania. 
Hadn't I shared many of my secrets with my sponsor in early sobriety? Didn't having those stories met with empathy free me from a lifetime of torturous, continually replaying memories? But one of the first things I heard when returning to the meetings in 2006 was that we have a built-in forgetter. This is often mentioned to remind people why continued participation in meetings is so vital. I guess I forgot that I have a forgetter. I forgot to put out my shame and I suffered. Fortunately, in this classroom I call life, courses aren't one and done. I can find myself in the same class repeatedly. Perhaps it's graduate work, but I suspect I'm in the remedial class more often than not. And that's just okay. Wow, that was, that was amazing. Uh, that was pretty powerful. And I think that the words that I were searching for earlier um, was exactly what this author said. And um, what I found really interesting was that what Brene Brown said as well about tell the story to someone that deserves to hear it. Someone that uh, with true empathy, because sometimes when you tell your story to maybe someone that doesn't deserve it, the shame can grow a little bit more. And that story, uh, I'll, I'll just give you all the rest of the day to, uh, to think about those things. I don't want to say too much. I don't want to offer too much of an opinion about it, but maybe take this story into your day with you and realize that there is always freedom from shame. And it's a good reminder for myself as well. And I look forward to speaking with you all next week. Thank you and have a great day.